Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount spans three full chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, 6, and 7. We are making our way through chapter 5 this morning, and we'll circle back to some of the later chapters as we get further into the year. But the very first sermon of the five that we have in Matthew, this Sermon on the Mountainside, has a theme to it. The theme is this. What is the kingdom of heaven? And what is it all about? Where is God at work in the world? And what does his work look like? Now, that sermon started with what we heard last week in the Beatitudes, which was an attempt by the Lord's Son to really shake up our conceptions about where God is at work and how. God is not at work in the places that we in the world might think, and the places where we think God has abandoned people are actually where he is most present, in those who mourn, in the poor in spirit, in the humble, in those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But now as we get a little bit further into this sermon, Jesus elaborates on this theme and says, so what about the people in whom God is reigning? What do they do? And what good are they? The very first thing Jesus says is those people are salt. Salt's kind of a weird thing to be compared to. We've all been told not to use too much salt in our food because it's not good for us. So the first thing you know about salt is a little dabble, do you? You don't need a whole lot of it. At the same time, if your food is missing salt, it definitely doesn't taste quite as good. I like to have a little salt in my food. Most of you probably do too. Food can be awfully bland without it. Now, Jesus talks about salt losing its saltiness. This is something that's kind of a struggle. And the more you think about it, the more you realize this doesn't really make any sense. It's like water losing its wetness. What is it then? It's not really water if it's not wet anymore. Really, that might be the point that Jesus is making. Salt is either salt or it's not. It's kind of an on or off sort of thing. You can't be sort of salt. You can't be just like just N-A and not C-L. You have to be both together all the time in every place. So Jesus says the people in whom God reigns are always his people. They just are. It's the way it is. Now, the interesting thing about salt is it isn't just for taste. It's also for preservation. You needed salt to preserve meat for the long voyages back and forth across oceans or to preserve things when you didn't have, you know, minus 50 degree weather outside where you could just put stuff outside your front door and have it freeze instantaneously or in a place where you don't have power and refrigerators and freezers. Without salt, things don't keep. They go rotten. And I thought of one last thing about salt this morning as I was driving to church, something that people in northern climes might be the only ones to think about. You need salt to keep the roads passable. You don't want a lot of it. Too much salt, you end up killing off all the vegetation on the sides of the roads or wherever it is that all the snow that gets swept up by the giant snow throwers and dump trucks gets dumped. 
But a little bit of salt on the roads will keep the ice melted and enable us to travel around safely. All of which is to say that salt has a multitude of uses, and yet each of those uses requires the salt just be present in small doses. You don't need a lot, but just a little bit can make all the difference in the world. So the first thing Jesus is saying about those who are poor and meek and peacemakers and hungering and thirsting for righteousness in his name is there not going to be huge piles of them. There will be a few, but those few will make all the difference. And to really emphasize that point, Jesus goes on and says, these people in whom God is reigning, because that's what the kingdom of heaven is, the people in whom God is at work will be light. They will, in fact, be the light of the world. Now, back in Proverbs, in the Old Testament, Proverbs 6.23, it's the Torah, the word of God that is called the light of the world which is why every single synagogue has a scroll of the Torah. They might not have had a scroll of all of the prophets or of all of the writings, but you had to have the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And that reading was the central part of synagogue worship because the people who were sitting in darkness were receiving the light of the world. Now that word of God, takes flesh first in Jesus, which we have beautifully portrayed in the beginning of John's gospel. In John chapter one, the true light, which enlightens all people was coming into the world. This light that is the life of men, the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot put out. And that light that is the word that was with God in the beginning turns out to be none other than Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth now is the place where the light of the world comes to live. And now Jesus himself says that his salt, his little grains of salt that he is making in the world, will be part of him, so much part of him, that they will also be him. Paul says we are the body of Christ in the world, and therefore we too are the light of the world. Now, you know what's interesting about light, because we talked about what's interesting about salt, is that light doesn't draw attention to itself. Think about that for a minute. Light serves an indirect purpose. If you don't have it on, you can't see. But you don't turn on lights so that you can stare at the lights themselves. After the car crashed into our basement, our house, um, we were without hydro. We couldn't really see anything. And since it happened at the darkest time of the church or darkest time of the secular year, we needed some way to be able to maneuver around and rescue some things. And so we bought on sale at Canadian Tire, these two giant halogen work lights. Now, these things are bright. 
We did have five plugs in the house that still worked, one in the basement, three in the kitchen. So we ran a super long extension cord and plugged in that halogen light. And the first time you plug it in, if you happen to be anywhere looking at those lights, you pretty much go blind. But the really neat thing about them is they don't just generate light, they generate heat. And so once we pointed them sort of up out of our line of sight, they lit up the whole basement. And when those lights weren't on, we really, really noticed because A, it got super cold and B, we kept stumbling around. But you don't look at the lights themselves. The lights don't serve a purpose in and of themselves. What they do is make it possible to see. And you really notice the light when it goes out, don't you? You're like, man, I, I really miss the fact that I could walk into a room and flick a switch and suddenly I could see everything. Now I've got to find candles or a flashlight or get that extension cord and plug in those halogen work lights. The point that Jesus is making here about his disciples, the ones at whom God is at work, is that they will not draw attention to themselves. They are the light. But the thing with light is when it goes out or if it is missing, everything will seem awfully dark. Christians will be of such a character that when they're there, you won't necessarily notice them. You'll take them for granted. But when they are gone, you really, really will notice. Lastly, after talking about these disciples of his in whom God is at work being salt and light, he says they are like a city set on a hill. Now, these are words that are near and dear to Americans because they remember President Reagan liking to compare the United States to a city set on a hill, drawing on this very same biblical imagery. Now, there's a problem with being a city on a hill, a set apart place and people. And that is, it can go to your head. Israel was supposed to be the city set on a hill. Israel were called to be the people of God that all of the nations of the earth might see the light of God in them, that they might be that little tiny nation that was the salt to season and preserve the whole human race. But what happened to the people of Israel? It came all about them. Look at us, stare into the light, because we are the light. Isn't that great? Put mounds of us on your food, because we're salt and we're awesome. They started to believe that they were special for themselves. That they served a purpose for themselves as if somehow you would want to eat a plate full of salt, as if somehow you would want to sit there and stare into that halogen light until you go blind. No, God said, you were supposed to be the seasoning, the preserver, the one that would bring darkness, that would take away the darkness in the world. The Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus talks about in the rest of our gospel lesson epitomize this problem. They were so busy, you see, keeping the law, keeping the Torah, that they never actually did the law. They were so consumed with the wonder of being salt and the miracle of being light 
that they never actually were salt and never actually served the purpose of light. And because of that, they were no longer a city set on a hill. Why would you set a city on a hill anyway? It's kind of a crazy place to put a city if you think about it in ancient terms. You want to hide your city or at least fortify it well so that people won't attack it. You put a city on a hill. If you know that it is protected and you know that it is safe and you want to show everybody around that there is a safe place to go. With all the wild animals roaming around in the countryside and all of the bands of bandits, when the sun is finally setting and you do see the darkness coming down, you see the lights of that city and know there I will find safety. There I can rest and not have to worry about all of the terrors and dangers of the night. This is one of the reasons why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in the first place. Cities were supposed to be places of haven and safety, not places where you had to worry that if you finally got there, you might be raped or worse, killed. Quebec City was set on a hill because it kind of served that same purpose. It was a defensible position. It was a safe position. And when people saw the ramparts of Quebec, they knew they could go there and they would be safe. So what will, how do we keep ourselves from becoming salt obsessed with its saltiness and light that stares at itself and no longer being a city on a hill? Well, Jesus gives us the answer at the very end of our reading for this morning. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, unless you have a greater righteousness than they do, God's rule is not happening in your heart, and you won't be salt, and you won't be light. Jesus says he has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to make justice real in the world, justice between God and man, reconciliation, forgiveness of sins, taking away the fear of death, defeating Satan and his armies. Jesus himself is going to be the righteousness that exceeds anything the Pharisees and scribes have ever displayed. And he does this not by coming to end the law or throwing it out, but by fulfilling it, making it full, right? That's what to fulfill means. Amazon has fulfilled your order. You've purchased something from them and the package has shown up at your door. And now there is justice because the money you've spent has resulted in the product that you wanted. Paul says that Jesus has brought about the end of the law, and he means the same thing. Not end as if it doesn't matter anymore, but he is the telos, the completion. The whole point of the law is Jesus himself. You might think of it this way. The covenant that God made with the people of God, who were supposed to be the original salt and the original light and the original city set on a hill, the covenant he made at Sinai was like a mortgage on a house. Those of you who are fortunate enough to have a house probably didn't have all the money to buy it in the first place. So you go to the bank, 
you prove that you've got an income and that your credit is good and they give you a bunch of money and you promise to pay the bank back. And so every month money is taken out of your bank account or you have to handwrite a check or however it is you might pay it. You give them a little interest on the side because the banks are so poor. They struggle so mightily every day just to make ends meet, right? That's why we do that. And eventually, at the end of, oh, two, three decades, you have paid off your mortgage, and now the house is yours. The bank can't come and take it away from you because the house has been purchased. So you might translate what Jesus is saying this way. If the covenant was a mortgage on the house of God that Israel was paying off, Jesus says, I have not come to encourage continued repayment or to file for bankruptcy, but to pay off the terms so the house can now be yours. That's what he means by fulfilling the law. Paying off the mortgage doesn't mean that you have to move out of the house. On the contrary, it means the house is now yours. You can do with the house what you will. The house can fulfill all of your purposes for it. You don't have to worry about, oh, what if I wreck this? Or what if that happens? The bank could come and repossess. You can really, finally, truly enjoy the house because you're no longer making mortgage payments. That's what Jesus has done. The house of God is now ours. We can be salt. We can be light. And now the church is once again called upon to be what Israel was supposed to be, the city set on a hill. Jesus calls his disciples, which means Jesus calls us to seize in the world, to light up the darkness, and be a safe and visible refuge. That's what his disciples will do. And when they do, that will be the reign of God in the world. He makes us salt. He makes us light. He makes us a safe haven by fulfilling the law and giving to you and I his righteousness that exceeds the good works of the Pharisees and scribes. Because you see, the Pharisees were willing to live for the law. Jesus was willing to die for it. And for you and I. I close with this one little silly thought. I was thinking about this whole business of what Jesus was describing us as. And it made me think of the Mormons. And the headquarter of the Mormons, if you know anything about them, is in Utah. And the headquarters of Utah is a certain place in which the Mormon tabernacle is situated called Salt Lake City. The reign of God through Jesus in us starts with our being reconciled with God through the cross. Our sins are atoned for, our debt paid off, we've been redeemed from Satan, and now the Spirit lives in us to make us a far better temple than the one in Salt Lake City. Because what Jesus actually makes us is a salt light city. A salt light city set on a hill. A safe refuge for all who are in the dark tasteless, looking for a spark and preservation for life, looking for light and looking for the reign of God, the kingdom of heaven. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.